Alright, so like I said, last week we began looking at the very first metaphor that Paul used, and that was of circumcision. And so this week we're going to look at baptism, and both of these are pointing us towards our identity in Christ. And we began last week by providing a biblical background or a biblical foundation of circumcision that we found in Genesis chapter 17 and the account of God making his covenant with Abram. And we saw in verse 7 of that chapter uh, these words, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And it was also at this time that God changed Abram's name to Abraham. And he gave Abraham the command that he and all the male uh, persons in his household need to be circumcised. And this was done as a physical sign of being a member of the covenant people of God. But we also learned that as we looked at the text a little closer that God's plan was more than that. It had greater spiritual implications literally from the very beginning. So God's intention was to provide a means for reconciliation between man and himself that included both Jews and Gentiles. And when we examined verse 11, we learned that Paul was also making something else very clear. That physical circumcision was not the main idea because it was just an outward sign of something much greater, something more significant as a matter of the heart, having your heart circumcised through faith rather than a physical procedure. Well, today... We're going to examine Paul's second metaphor of baptism that will also help us understand uh, even more the believer's identity in Christ. And when we look at the end of uh, verse 11 of Colossians 2, we'll see that it ends in a comma and not a period. And so it indicates a couple of things, that Paul is continuing his thought, and number two, he is connecting circumcision and baptism in some way. And so with that said, I would ask that you would stand together as we read from Colossians chapter 2 beginning in verse 11 and and listen as I, I read beginning in verse 11. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
So the first thing that we're going to see this morning, which is our first point, is that the believer that believers are identified with Christ through water baptism. And we see that in verse 12. Again, we established last week that physical circumcision was not necessary for salvation, and neither is baptism necessary for salvation. Both circumcision and baptism are outward signs of what has previously taken place within a believer's heart, namely regeneration. And regeneration is that moment when an individual's heart has been made alive through the power of God to salvation. They have passed from death to life uh, by faith in Christ alone for their salvation. And so the first part of this message is going to be focused on water baptism. But I think it's important that I define the term water baptism. What do I mean when I say that? And what I'm saying is baptism by immersion. I am not talking about sprinkling. I'm not talking about infant baptism or any other form or practice. It is my belief, and it's the belief of Asheville Bible Church's elders as well, which is also shared by many theologians, that baptism by immersion is what the scriptures have in view, and it most closely identifies with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Pastor talked about this week's catechism question. Um, well, I'm going to focus on next week's catechism question. Because as I was putting the bulletin together, I looked at next week's and I'm like, well, I wish it was just one week difference. So the question for next week is, how is baptism rightly administered? And the answer is, baptism is rightly administered by immersion or dipping the whole body of the person in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so with that understanding, let's now begin to work through verse 12 as we seek to understand more about this metaphor that Paul uses of baptism and why it is important for all believers to be baptized after they have come to faith in Christ. And so draw your attention now to verse 12 of Colossians chapter 2. Where we read, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Before we start breaking down verse 12, I want to just make a few general observations about the text. The first thing we see is that mostly, that, that mostly this verse is in the past tense. And so it's indicating that baptism is a response to something that has taken place in a person's life. And that is regeneration and salvation. The second thing we see in ver is, is like verse 11. It's speaking directly to Christ's crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So Paul again is stressing it's Christ's work of redemption on the cross. The third thing we see is the fulcrum or the, the important phrase in verse 12 are two words, through faith. And these two words are critical for understanding believers' baptism. And then the last thing I want to point out is that it's God's powerful working that accomplishes the work of salvation in the believer. So with that said, 
Let's look at the first phrase of verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised. So these words that Paul is using are pointing towards the believer's identity in Christ, in Christ's death when he uses the word buried, and his resurrection when he uses the word raised. And in his letter to the Roman church, he wrote this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. And in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what we see in these passages is that believers are identified with Christ through baptism. Now, physical baptism is a public confession of an individual's faith in Christ. And this is where we see Paul's connecting the physical act of baptism to the spiritual act of baptism, which is our redemption. Now, in some measure, Paul is connecting circumcision and baptism to the cross. As I said last week regarding circumcision, it's the same with baptism. That is, Christ is the object of both of these two things. And it's that connection that has driven a lot of debate on the practice of infant baptism. As Pastor mentioned, it's known as pedo-baptism. I'm not going to go into all of that, and he certainly explained a lot this morning. But I do think that verse 12 here... This passage gives us a very clear understanding of why we don't subscribe to the practice of infant baptism. Again, as I mentioned, the critical phrase in verse 12 are those two words, through faith. It's these two words that make the clear distinction of when an individual ought to be baptized. And that individual should be baptized only when they have believed by faith, meaning past tense, on Christ for salvation. Then, baptism is an expected and appropriate public confession of our faith. It's actually the next logical step, but only out of obedience, not because it completes a person's salvation. And the statement that Paul makes here indicates that something has taken place in the past, namely, that the believer has been buried with him, meaning Jesus Christ. And that phrase, having been buried, shows us that there's been a response by faith to Christ's work of salvation through his work on the cross. And just as Christ was physically dead, buried, and resurrected, baptism is a sign also for the believer that we have died to our sins and that we have been buried with him. And then when we raise that individual up out of the water, it illustrates to the one being baptized as well as those witnessing the baptism that this person has been raised with Christ to new life. And that is indicated by what Paul wrote when he said, who raised him from the dead. So believers through physical baptism are identifying with Jesus Christ publicly uh, 
and the work that he has performed in their heart when they gave their heart to him through salvation. We have died to our old fleshly nature. And this very nature was cut off. And we saw that last week when we looked at Genesis 17 verse 14. It was, cut, it was set aside. It was done away with. And that is how we described circumcision last week. And so Paul is just driving home the need for believers to understand that our old man, that is our flesh, has died, has been set aside, and done away with. That's what those two words, cut off, are referring to. What Paul is trying to, uh, to communicate to us is that baptism is a response to saving faith, not a means to saving faith. In other words, it's not Christ plus something or Christ plus baptism. Salvation is by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Now there are those who see support for what is called baptismal regeneration in verse 12. Meaning that they believe that water baptism is necessary to complete salvation. But that is not something the Apostle Paul would have ever considered. This, this wouldn't even have come into his mind. Paul would not replace one right, that is the right of circumcision, with another right. And that is the right of baptism. And we know this because in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 13 to 17, Paul concludes his statements regarding unity within the body of Christ with these words. It's verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So if Paul believed that baptism was require, required to complete a person's salvation, then he would have baptized everybody that he shared the gospel with and who responded to it. But if you look at that 1 Corinthians passage, you'll see in verses 14 and 15 that Paul was thankful that he hadn't baptized anyone except for Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. So again, biblical salvation is never Christ plus something. Because if, if salvation needed to have something else added to it, then that's indicating that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient. That it didn't accomplish the work that needed to be done. It would basically say that God's powerful working that we see in verse 12... It's not actually sufficient. But I tell you, God's power is infinite. It is second to none. He does not need anything from his creation to supplement it. Again, salvation is through Christ alone and grace and faith alone. Both baptism and circumcision speak of spiritual realities even though they're physical acts. Circumcision speaks to the removal of the flesh, and baptism speaks to the believer's union with Christ. Now, there are different methods of baptism done by various denominations, and we've talked about that this morning, and I'm certainly not going to address that here. But I do want to just emphasize again that here at Ashford Bible Church, we believe in baptism by immersion, as I noted earlier. And one text that really 
is a good explanation why we baptize this way is found in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Listen as I read. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be, un- re- excuse me, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the method of baptism by immersion is that physical observance of the greater spiritual reality. And again, as the individuals lean back and immersed under the water, it symbolizes their dying to sin and being buried with Christ. But that's not all, because in verse 12... We see that in which you were also raised with him. And in verse 13, we see the phrase, made alive together with him. So again, when we raise that person up out of the water, it speaks to our resurrection to a new life in Christ. It's representative of a new life, a new resurrected life. What remains in the grave, if you will, is our old sinful self. The resurrection to new life means we have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life through the powerful working of God. And again, the physical act of baptism does not save a person. It's only an outward expression of the change that has taken place in that individual's heart. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2.1 tells us, but now we've been resurrected and made alive together with Christ, as Ephesians 2.5 tells us. And so that brings us back again to those two critical words that we see in verse 12, through faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the door to salvation. When an individual through faith comes to salvation in Christ, it swings open the door to eternal life. And as we examine verse 11 and look back to Genesis 15 verse 6, we saw these words concerning Abram. He says, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. When we believe on Jesus Christ for salvation, it is counted to us as righteousness. I always refer to this as the great exchange. Christ took on our sin at Calvary, but he replaced that with his righteousness in our lives. That is huge. So faith is the key of everything I'm telling us this morning. 
It's why I refer to that phrase through faith, faith as the fulcrum, meaning that um, faith in Christ is what salvation balances on perfectly. It's also why the elders will meet with an individual who wants to be baptized and speak with them because we want to do two things. We want to know that they truly are a believer. And secondly, that they understand what baptism means, what it symbolizes, and why we do it publicly versus privately. I just want to emphasize again that baptism is something that we do out of obedience because it's a picture of the spiritual reality of our identification with Christ as our Lord and Savior. Again, it just speaks to the work that Christ has done in an individual's heart. And that leads us to the last phrase of verse 12, where we read, "...in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead." The word that is translated working here is energia. And it probably sounds familiar because it's where we get the English word energy from. And so Paul is driving home that it's this power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the same power of God that will raise you and I from the dead as believers. The same power of God was also displayed in creation. When God created the world, he created it by the word of his mouth. And when you read Genesis chapter 1 through verse 26, you'll see a phrase repeated many times. It's, and God said. He created something out of nothing. And so this is proof of God's absolute power and of the work that he can do in the lives of those who believe. So if you are a believer this morning, you have been raised from the dead spiritually to new life. You will one day be raised physically from the dead. And as I mentioned earlier, we will be given new physical bodies. Bodies that are fit for heaven. And sin will no longer be present because God will have done away with it. It's been fully judged and it's been removed forever. So now that we've examined both circumcision and baptism and we understand that these are physical acts that are pictures of a greater spiritual reality let's now turn our attention to what Paul's discussion on the power of the cross and that is our second point this morning the power of the cross look at verse 13 and following And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So now Paul explains in very clear terms the reason that he is highlighting circumcision and baptism. He's drawn the reader's attention to the power of God that is displayed in the cross of Christ. He's reminding us that prior to Christ's redemptive work of regeneration in our lives, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning that we had deviated from truth and uprightness. In other words, we have sinned and broken the law of God. 
prior to Christ working in our lives, our spiritual hearts were uncircumcised and dead. But now, through faith in the saving work of Christ's sacrifice, God has raised us up alive in Him. And not only are we truly alive together with Christ, but our sins have been completely forgiven, all of them. Our past sins, our present sins, and our future sin. Paul explains that God's forgiveness in verse 14 with the words, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This phrase, the record of debt, was a written document that showed what was owed by an individual, much like a loan document or a promissory note today. And he's using this, Paul is using this as an illustration of all of mankind's indebtedness to God because of our sin. But he was using an illustration that the Colossian believers could understand. Because when the Roman government sentenced a criminal to death, they would post above their heads a description of their crime and the reason for the death sentence. The point was to inform the citizenry of the Roman Empire what the results would be of breaking the Roman law and challenging the Roman government. When Christ was nailed to the cross, Pilate wrote in three separate languages, the primary languages of the day, Christ's so-called crime and posted it above his head on the cross. And it read this. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So this is what everyone who passed by would have seen as they passed by Christ hanging on the cross. And as Paul stated in verse 14, the record of debt was set aside by Christ having nailed it to the cross. And if you look on the right side of your bulletin, I have another H.A. Ironside quote. And he makes this observation. Follow along as I read it. Quote, But as God looked upon that cross, his holy eye saw, as it were, another inscription altogether. Nailed upon the rood, that is, the cross, above the head of his blessed Son, was the handwriting of the Ten Ordinances, or the Ten Commandments, given at Sinai. It was because this law had been broken in every point that Jesus poured out his blood, thus giving his life to redeem us from the curse of the law. And so all of our sins have been settled for. There, the law, which we had so dishonored, has been magnified to the full in the satisfaction which he made to the divine justice. Thus, Christ has become the end of the law to everyone that believeth. So by Christ's sacrifice, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Romans 6.23, familiar passage, makes this very clear that for the wages of sin is death. And so by virtue of our sin, we have earned our wage. And our paycheck, if I can put it that way, is death. But then there's these two beautiful words that we read in Scripture, but God. While we were still sinners, while we were still God's mortal enemy... He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us. And by believing on Him by faith, our sins are forgiven. And we see that in Romans 5.8. 
But let me illustrate this by Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a, a dream. He experienced this, the reality of this truth in this dream. In his dream, Satan visited him and brought a record of Luther's life written by Luther himself. Satan asked, is this true? Did you write this? Luther, who was terrified, had no other recourse but to admit that it was true, every word of it. And so page after page after page after page was shown to him, and all Luther could do was admit it was true. So after the devil had brought Luther to the depths of abject misery, he prepared to leave. But suddenly, Luther, the great reformer, turned to the tempter and he said, It is true, every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So, beloved, I tell you, it's not because we have done anything. It is because Jesus Christ died in our place. He paid our debt. He paid the penalty for our sin. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. And that is why so often when we have Communion Sunday, we always sing the hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. I love that hymn because it is such a great reminder of what Christ has done for us. But Paul uses another picture. And he, he's showing us how we're delivered from the bondage of evil powers. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities here are the demonic powers that are against Christ and against his church. And to illustrate Christ's power over them and his decisive victory, Paul uses a picture of a Roman general returning as a victor in battle. One such victory parade is described by a man named Plutarch. I like that name. He describes a three-day victory celebration given to the Roman general Armelius Paulus after returning from capturing Macedonia. Great scaffolds were erected in the Forum and along the boulevards of Rome for spectator seating. All of Rome turned out. They were dressed in festive white. On the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession statues, pictures, and colossal images that were taken from the enemy. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians. And in Plutarch's words, we read, quote, All newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposefully with the greatest art, so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, Cretan targets and Thracian bucklers and quivers of arrows lay huddled amongst horses' bits, and through these there appeared the points of naked swords, intermixed with long Macedonian spears. All of these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness that they struck against one another as they were drawn along and made a harsh and alarming noise so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy they would not be held without dread." Unquote. 
Following all that came the plundered treasure. And on day three, all the captives preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen. Then the Macedonian gold and the Macedonian king's chariot, crown, armor, and his servants who were weeping and begging for mercy. And finally, the captured king himself and his family. Well, Plutarch continues, quote, Seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his right hand, all the army in like manner with bows of laurels in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom of songs of triumph and the praise of Armelius's deeds. What a sight that must have been. But how much greater will the sight be of Christ's second advent? Listen to how John describes Christ's procession in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of fury with the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I'm grateful that I'm going to be one of those riding a white horse behind him and not looking at him coming at me. What a frightening sight that's going to be for the unredeemed. But this is a picture of the power of the cross. Christ achieved a great victory over the evil powers of this world and he put them to shame, open shame, by triumphing over them in Christ. The reason why the apostle says open shame is to let the readers know that even though evil powers still exist in this world, Christ has defeated them. He has made a public spectacle of them. So we do not need to fear the outcome of the battle against evil. Christ has conquered. We have conquered. And we will conquer. So this morning... If I didn't once again give opportunity to respond to the gospel, I, I would not be doing justice to the text this morning. We've examined these two metaphors these last couple of weeks, and for the person who does not, who has not been circumcised spiritually, who has not been baptized, this means nothing to them. But I asked the question. Have you believed on Christ for salvation? If not, and if God is working in your heart right now, and I would say that if he is, you know it, then I want to extend to you the invitation to respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting to surrender your life to Christ this morning. The gospel is simply this. We're all born in trespasses and sins. And the sentence for our sin is death. Everyone who comes into the world 
has this sentence of death hanging over them. And remember what I quoted from John MacArthur last week? When I read, quote, No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin inasmuch as it is the part of man that produces life, and all that he produces is sinful, unquote. And I mentioned that the sin nature is passed down through the seed of man. Thus all men are born dead in their trespasses and sins. And that is reinforced by Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. We also read in John 3, 16 and 17, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And if you were to go on to verse 18, you would find out that for those who don't believe are condemned already. But God has provided a means of salvation through the death of Christ, his only Son on the cross. And so Romans 10.9 reminds us, and tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we must agree with God that we have sinned and we deserve death. That is our punishment. But if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he paid our debt for sin on his cross when he was crucified, dead, buried, and rose again, on the third day, by the power of God, then we will be saved. So again, have you believed the gospel? Will you respond to Christ's call to be saved? If, if you want to do that today, if that is something you know the Lord is working in your heart, then please see myself or pastor. We would love to talk to you, open the scriptures to you, and pray with you. Because Christ gave his life. And there is nothing greater that can be done by us than what Christ has already done, except to believe. Amen? Let's pray.